Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking with Shoshana Zuboff, who has literally written the book on surveillance capitalism. She's the person who named it, she explains it, and she's here to bury it. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. We recorded this conversation last week and we were joined by John Norton, who has talked about surveillance capitalism on this podcast in the past when we've been trying to make sense of Facebook and Google. That's what this is about. Shoshana Zuboff's book has been seven years in the making, so she saw this a long time before anyone else. She told us that she's not only delighted the book is out, but that she's out of her pyjamas back in the world, able to talk about it. It's a big book, but it's also really urgent. Like our conversation about climate with John Lanchester last week, this really matters now. So there are hundreds of ways into the argument of this book. I'm just going to pick one sentence from near the end, which will need some unpacking, I think, but it does capture something, I think, of the essence of the argument, and it's this. Surveillance capitalists know too much to qualify for freedom. And at the heart of your book, there is an argument about the relationship between knowledge and freedom and capitalism. So let's unpack it. First of all, what do they know? And second, why does that knowledge mean they don't qualify for the freedoms of capitalism? That is the quintessential sentence. Surveillance capitalists know too much to qualify for freedom. This, as you understood, is a multi-level message. So let's start with the top line. The top line is that the entire neoliberal argument is that markets must be free and they must be free because markets are so complex they are ineffable. This goes of course all the way back to Smith whom Friedrich Hayek, the great philosopher of neoliberalism, leaned on Smith for this whole construction. And the idea was that you know mar- markets are complex and it's people buried in their locales and we can never know everything and therefore each actor has to have maximum freedom in order to make the market work effectively. Well, we fast forward to the age of surveillance capitalism, which was kicked off in the early 2000s, specifically 2001. And what we see is that this new capitalism also marches under the banner of neoliberalism. It says the state must not regulate us. If the state regulates us, it will kill innovation. It will kill freedom. It will kill the free enterprise. It will kill the spirit of the entrepreneur. But in fact, these same neoliberal arguments are actually the opposite of what Hayek and before him Smith intended. Because these surveillance capitalists make it their business, and I mean that quite literally, it is their source of revenue to know everything. And even though they do not know everything, 
their entire competitive dynamic puts them on a path to know more and more toward the goal of everything. And on the way through, they have amassed a greater concentration of unilateral knowledge than anything that we can imagine in human history. This is an, an immense asymmetry of knowledge that these private institutions under the ownership of surveillance capital are entirely in control of. And at the heart of that is knowledge of behavior. And the, the Hayekian argument about the market was, in a sense, you don't know how members of the market are going to behave. You don't know how prices are going to come out because you can't be sure who will pay what for what. Hayek believed the market was a mystery. Yeah, so in a sense, no one knew anything. And that's no why everyone had to anything. be free. Everyone now, had to be free. And are... everyone was operating in their little community, you know, in their little village or marketplace or locale. And so both geographically, the sort of physical structure of life, as well as theoretically, we can't know all the things that other actors are going to do, made the marketplace a place of inherent ignorance. And we are only talking a generation or two ago, in case it sounds like this is some ancient ancient time. We're talking the 1970s, as it were. Yeah, we're talking five minutes ago, really. So they, they know, and they were talking about the big tech companies, Google, Facebook, and others, they know things about our behavior that Hayek would say only the market can know and therefore nobody knows. But do they know our behavior or have they constructed a market that gets us to behave in the ways that allow them to know it, if you see what I mean? Is it the knowledge of our behavior that's driving this or is it the fact that they are shaping our behavior so that it's knowable? All right. The first point is that they know so much about our behavior, but also about the larger dynamics of the markets in which they operate. And nevertheless, and illegitimately, they demand complete freedom for their actions. So that's the first lie of this sentence, you know, that they no longer can claim the right to the freedom that the neoliberalists claim because they no longer operate in ignorance. That's number one. Number two is that they both know behavior and in the competition to create the most precise predictions of human behavior to sell to business customers who in in these new marketplaces that are trading exclusively in futures of human behavior they not only know our behavior but the competitive dynamic that arises in this marketplace taught them that the most predictive sources of behavioral data are those that come from actually intervening in our behavior and shaping it. And this is what you're getting to. So they both know our behavior in immense detail from various unilateral, illegitimate monitoring operations. And they now know even more about how to predict our behavior because they have learned to do what data scientists call actuate. Data scientists talk about the shift from knowing to actuating. And now they are learning how to actuate our behavior, tuning with subliminal cues, herding with various kinds of signals, commands, rewards, and punishments, driving our behavior in specific directions that satisfy the commercial outcomes which they and their business customers seek. 
So what this does is turn the saturated architecture of the digital in which we all now live, it turns this architecture into an intentionally designed global means of behavioral modification that is a means now to profit for surveillance capitalism. Behavioral modification and profit now are conflated on the same path to these immense supply chains of highly predictive behavioral data. And part of that is to make the technology addictive because it's also built into this story that in order for that whole system to work, we need to be behaving a lot online, right? At what point did that kind of enter into the calculations that this was also a competition just to use that famous phrase, just to capture our attention so that you could then get that whole chain going? Well, the people who understood surveillance capitalism understood that from the very start. Right, so that was baked in at the beginning. Well, what was baked in was the idea that we're claiming private human experience for the marketplace. We're doing that unilaterally outside of people's awareness because if you ask people, they'll say no. So they understood from the beginning that these had to be the social relations of surveillance, the one-way mirror, if you will. We claim private human experience. We translate it into data. We feed those data into machine learning operations. And from that, we produce predictions that can be sold in these lucrative new markets. Machine learning requires volume. So from the very start, it was understood that economies of scale in behavioral data were going to be essential. Volume is essential. Of course, as the competitive dynamic continued to explode, what they eventually learned too was that we also need scope. We need varieties of data. So you've got to get out of the office, away from your desktop. Now you're on your mobile. Now you're out in the world. Now you're walking in the park. Now, now you're, you're on the street and we're going to watch you. Now you're on the street. And we've got, as Larry Page said, right at the very beginning, I believe it was the year 2000, sensors are cheap. <laughs> so sensors are everywhere. Devices are everywhere. Mobile is everywhere. And through this, we're capturing the whole range of your activity, where you shop and where you drive and who you're with and where you walk and how you run and all of those things. But then also the depth of human activity, the facial muscles that we see through facial recognition. What are the nuanced emotions that we can detect from the analysis of the movements of your face, these tiny gestures that are beyond the perception of the human eye. And from knowing these emotions, we can analyze what you are likely to do now and soon and later. We analyze aspects of your organic functioning through all kinds of applications that go to bloodstream or go to diabetes or go to um, different organs and how they function, your eyes. There are insurance companies experimenting with telematics that measure the gaze of your eyes as you drive, and they can reward and punish you in real time with your premium rates, depending on their knowledge of whether or not you're looking at the road the way they want you to. All of these things represent the flow of behavioral surplus, these surplus data for the manufacturer of these predictions. Once you begin to understand this logic, so many things become kind of easy and clear that are strange and, and misleading at first. 
everything that you read about in the news, whether it's Facebook's VPN, where they're paying kids $20 to have free access to their phones, every product with the word smart in front of it, every service with the word personalized in front of it, we wonder why does Google do photos and search and have phones and offer social and all these other kinds of services? Why does Facebook have portal as well as being a social medium and so on? All of these things are simply supply chain interfaces. None of these companies care what you do. They don't care how you do it. They don't care if you're happy or if you're sad, if you're rich or you're poor. They only care that you behave in a way that is adjacent to a supply chain interface that can be captured, translated into data, and tossed into these vast supply chains, these complex looping supply chains on their way to machine learning. Part of the problem, I think, with communicating this argument to people for whom it is new is that it's not actually about technology. That's one of the key things I thought of in the book, because most of the discussion we have about this stuff, I think, is about the capabilities of the technology for monitoring people. And of course, those capabilities are real and they exist. But the, your argument is that, in a sense, this is not about technology at all. This is about the way in which a particular logic of accumulation, which you call surveillance capitalism, essentially commandeers this technology for this particular purpose. And the corollary of that, of course, is that the technology doesn't have to be used that way. It just, this is the way it happened. And this is what has got us to where we are now. So people who think this is about controlling the technology, it's not quite right, is it? The surveillance capitalists have succeeded in part because of an ideology of inevitabilism. And they've tried to get us to believe that all these things that they're doing whenever we do find out about them, whenever the veil is torn back a little bit and we get wind of these backstage operations, they want us to think that this is really how the digital technology works. And there's really nothing that they can do about it or that we can do about it. Our listeners, I'm sure, have heard the phrase winner take all. Well, folks, that's just what networks do. It's blame the networks. There was a famous um, interview with Eric Schmidt on TV back in 2009 when he was the CEO of Google. This was just shortly after there was an expose that the intelligence agencies were dipping into Google search data to find out stuff that they wanted to know about us. And so he went on TV to defend Google. And, and the famous thing that was recalled from that interchange on the television was he said, folks, if you're doing something that you have to hide, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. He went on to say, yes, it's true. This information is there. The intelligence agencies will look at it. This is because, quote, search engines do retain. Search engines do retain, as if the retention of information is a function of technology that somehow we cannot escape. Autonomous technology with a life of its own, and all we can do is, is go along the best we can. In a book that's full of memorable phrases, the one that stood out for me at the end when you talk about technological inevitabilism, you call it a snuff dream of the human spirit. You know, this is this is life and death, right? For, is, for, for what makes us is, who we are. This is life and death because when we talk about actuating human behavior, intervening in the state of play, changing, shifting, modifying, shaping, tuning our behavior, 
We're talking about a primary intervention in the very fabric of human autonomy for the sake of what? Someone else's commercial gain. We're talking about, you know, what does free will really mean when you get right down to it? Free will means that we can imagine a future. It can be an hour from now or, or a decade from now. And we can activate our will through our action to take the small steps that allow us to cross inch by inch, moment by moment from the present to that imagined future that only we can see. That's the essence of autonomy. That's the essence of human free will. And this is what, for the sake purely of surveillance revenues, is one of the things that is under threat. And of course, we can talk about institutional issues too that are relative to democracy, but at the very personal level, this is an affront to democracy because the very prospect of a democratic society is impossible to imagine without the idea that we as individuals, as citizens, have the capacity to choose our actions and to fulfill our vision of a future. One of the things that uh, that I've hoped to do. I've spent seven years working on this book and every single moment of every single day I did it for one reason. And that was a belief that until we can clearly name what's going on, grasp it, understand it for what it is, these hidden backstage operations designed to keep us ignorant, once we can name it, we can begin to feel the sense of intolerability. We begin to feel the sense of outrage. And now this book contributes to many other tributaries coming together to create a sea change in public opinion. But, but in a way, isn't that like what the feminist movement tried to do in the 70s, which was then described as raising consciousness? When I first came on your book and started on it, the phrase that came to my mind was a phrase that's engraved on Marx's tomb in Highgate Cemetery, which goes up something like this. The philosophers have, have attempted to explain the world, but the point is to change it. Now, the thing about your book, I think, is that it has provided a really good explanation, I think, and the best one we've had so far, of the overall picture of how we have got to where we are now. And that's an essential first step, I think, in, in raising consciousness. But then Marx's second question is, the point is, <laughs> how do we change it? Yeah. The first thing is raising consciousness. The second thing is to have a public will of some kind which wants to do something about this. Yes. And, and that, believes that something can be done. Yes. My theory of change is that none of these three responses which I'm about to describe are feasible unless we can first name what's going on. So lifting the veil to me is essential. And I think your comparison with feminism is an interesting one. Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek, the great architects of neoliberalism, had a very specific theory of change. They said public opinion today is law in 20 years. And I think that there's a lot of relevance for that strategy for us now. And that is, with naming, public opinion can begin to shift. I don't think it will take 20 years because now we've got internet time. Things are accelerated these days. But, that, in a way, was going to be my question. Yeah, do we have 20 no, years? If this cycle is working in the way that you described, yeah. we don't have 20 years. Yeah, and I don't think it will take 20 years. But what we have now is the possibility of the kind of 
sea change in public opinion that will get the attention of our electorate, our legislatures, our public officials, that we that they will begin to understand that we will no longer tolerate this situation, that democracy can no longer indulge these companies for the sake of the intelligence agencies who quite like to be able to have these facilities over in Silicon Valley or wherever that they can dip into as they needed because these things are outside the Constitution, outside the law of the land, that we will no longer tolerate a free ride for surveillance capitalism, that these are fundamentally illegitimate operations, the taking of private human experience is illegitimate and must be interrupted, the idea that we live in a time where the dominant form of capitalism is one that trades in human futures, and for the sake of the robustness of those marketplaces, they would dare to intervene in our freedom, in our autonomy, that they would dare to disfigure our democratic society in a 21st century, which is a knowledge economy, an information civilization, a time when what we have the opportunity to learn and how we can put to use in, in the world what we're able to learn is paramount. That is the key determination of social order now in the 21st century. And because democracy has slept, these companies have been able to put themselves at the very pinnacle of society, knowing so much about us while we know so little about them, knowing everything about us for others' purposes but not for ours. So these are asymmetries of knowledge and therefore, of course, power that are intolerable to a democracy. We have this opportunity now, I believe, to start exerting that pressure. So that's number one. And, I, and John and I were in Brussels last week with uh, quite a few lawmakers and important um, officials in the EU administration, and there is a new appetite, certainly in the EU leadership, for addressing precisely these questions. This is one form of solution. Mustering the resources of our democratic institutions is essential. A second piece that we should not ignore is that there is room for world historic competitive solutions. Because what we're talking about with surveillance capitalism is a situation where in every single piece of research and survey work where people are informed about these practices, they don't want anything to do with them. And the fact that they continue engaging is a conflation of social participation and these supply chains that we simply can't escape. But you give people a choice and they will take that choice. So this turns into an incredible market opportunity. If you become a group of companies that creates the alliances, roots the new ecosystems, establishes these new hubs that form an alternative path to the digital future, and bring us back to those values that we sought initially, you literally have the opportunity to have every person on earth as your customer. That is how much people do not want to be entrapped in these systems over which right now they have so little choice because the alternatives have either been foreclosed or have not yet been produced. So that's number two. And the third one, and then I'll, I'll give way, is, is the idea of collective action. You know, in the uh, growth of industrial capitalism, 
We ultimately developed the institutions of collective bargaining, the institution of the strike. These were new forms of collective action that were sanctioned by law, that had the full support of society, and that helped to tame the raw excessive of industrial capitalism along with law and along with competitive solutions. I think we face the same opportunity today. It's not going to be collective bargaining as it was in the 20th century. It's not going to be strike in the same way. But now it is our turn to invent the new forms of collective collaborative action that will exercise our power. Don't forget, we're no longer looking at surveillance capitalism as a form of power imposed strictly in the economic domain, in workplaces, on workers. It now falls on all of us. We are all users. It falls on all of our bodies, on all of our lives, on all of our families. And so how do we come together in new forms of collective action that also, along with the state and along with the market, help to tame this capitalism, ultimately to outlaw it as a rogue form of capitalism that should not define our future. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We'll come back to democracy, but the question fundamentally that the book raises is about capitalism what it is and whether this because some people will read this in the current political moment and say it confirms what we always believed about capitalism that it was heading this way this is pure capitalism this is what it looks like and I think you say it shouldn't be eaten raw and this is the raw version but you could also argue this is not capitalism this is some distortion of it this is some mutant version and you have this phrase it's a idea that's got a long history of the kind of reciprocities, the double movement, the idea, you used the phrase earlier that this has become a one-way mirror, and it's meant to be a two-way process if capitalism is going to work, and we've lost that. So when you've got the one-way version, are we still dealing with something that we should think of as belonging to that history of capitalism, or are we sort of out there in somewhere new? Is this actually not just a mutant version, but something different because I think for the politics it really matters whether we're rescuing capitalism or to coin another phrase from the guy in Highgate Cemetery burying it here's uh, a a way to to think about an answer to this very very important question we've talked about surveillance capitalism as a radical asymmetry of knowledge and what I've also suggested is that that knowledge produces a new unique kind of power if I may introduce the, the, the word that I use for that, because I, I thought many years about this term, I call it instrumentarian power. This is not simply a return to fascism. Or, so it's not totalitarian. It's not That's totalitarianism. Totalitarianism is a very specific form of power, also unprecedented in its time. But it functioned through the means of terror and violence and murder. It wanted you from the inside out. 
to confess and conform and all of those horrors. Instrumentarian power works differently. It works through the instrumentation of the digital media, although it is not the same as the digital media. And it also instrumentalizes us, our lives, our behavior, as a means to others' commercial ends. This is why I call it instrumentarian power. One asks the question, we've talked about the means of behavioral modification, that it can intervene in our lives and shape our behavior. What is the power that allows some entity to do that? We've never had such a power rampant in the world, using this global architecture to work its will. But now this reaches beyond the normal brief, if you will, of capitalism, beyond the strictly economic domain, if you will. Because as instrumentarian power going for more and more behavioral data, feeding the machine learning constantly. And what we see now is that it's, it's not only is it not just online behavior, and not only is it simply your walk to work, and not only is it simply your face, or even your activity, now we want the city. We call it the smart city. Google calls it the Google city. When the Toronto city officials told Eric Schmidt that they were going to have the opportunity to develop the waterfront as the smart city, Eric Schmidt's reply was, oh good, now it's our turn. The Google city. So now what we see is Google replaces government. Computation replaces politics. No one's asking the citizens what they want. This is the citizen city. This is the people of Toronto city. This is not the Google city. And there are people in Toronto right now fighting this fight, saying these things, and their public officials are not listening to them because somehow they are living in a fantasy world where they equate Google with progress. The Google city, computation instead of politics, we know what this is. We've seen it before in human history. It's a return to absolutism. But is it the logic of capitalism? So is that the bastardization of capitalism, or is that where capitalism, in some sense, was heading when the politics gets completely thinned out and stripped away? You see what I mean? That's my well, question. Is because the double movement of capitalism is a I political understand. story. Yeah, I is this what it looks like when you just get the economic logic? Well... Okay, let's make some distinctions first. We know what raw capitalism looked like at the end of the 19th century. It was called the Gilded Age. And that was a time when people had no protection as workers, where children were sent to the factory for long hours and weeks. Bodies were broken and democracy also turned the other cheek. And it took, it took our societies a few decades but ultimately, we ended the Gilded Age. And we ended the Gilded Age with law and regulation and what has come to be known as the double movement, the idea that capitalism will always run to excess, always produce a violence, always destroy the things that it wants to buy and sell, unless it is tamed by the state, tamed by specifically a democratic state and tethered to the principles of democracy and the interests of its people. 
now we're in the digital age, if you will. We're in the 21st century. The fight is no longer about a raw industrial capitalism. It's about a raw information capitalism. Some would call it a raw data capitalism. So it's a different kind of capitalism, but it too has been allowed to run to excess under the banner of so-called, God save us, self-regulation. The same idea. The Gilded Age capitalists, the great millionaires of, of that age, the Morgans and so forth, they used to say, capitalism doesn't require any law. We have enough law. We have the law of supply and demand, and we have the law of survival of the fittest. We don't need any more law. Well, our surveillance capitalists say pretty much the same thing. We don't need any law. We've got the law of network effects, and we've got you know Moore's law, which we always do more, cheaper, faster. And so we've got the law of inevitabilism. That's got what the they're law saying. Law of inevitability. We don't need any more laws. So. When we allow, in the age of the digital, we allow capitalism to have its will without any impediment from the polis, from democracy, from any direction, and to annihilate all competition because it has found the fast track to monetization that no one else can compete with as long as it's lawful. Well, then what we're seeing is the raw excesses of capitalism in the digital age, which is surveillance capitalism. So I want to say two things that are broadly pessimistic in the context of this story, though I completely take the point that you're making, which is the the things that you describe are the things we will have to do. So there's no point sort of denying that. But two things that give me pause as to whether we will be able to do them. The Gilded Age story also ends with the First World War. You you talk about Piketty in your book. The possibility of taming the inherent tendency of capitalism towards inequality. But anyone who reads Piketty's book knows that he struggles with the fact that you strip out the two world wars and it's not clear that you can tame it. That's the first. The second is the point that you make, which is this story started with democracy on its knees anyway, in a way. And democracy has been in trouble for a while Facebook didn't cause the problems of the advanced democracies. So it came in at a moment of weakness. And now we've got this accelerated process where Facebook may well be weakening it further. Might this not be different? So different both because, with luck, we won't have a third world war and that won't be a way out of this one to empower the state again, but also because democracy was weak to start with. Well, it certainly is easy to feel bleak about things from the vantage point of this moment because in societies such as the UK and in the US where we thought no matter what happens anywhere in the world democracy will remain strong in these countries and we see with the elections in 2016 which perhaps were materially disfigured by these very forces that we're speaking of We've all been surprised at how how quickly we see some things unraveling that we thought were inviolate. On the other hand, in both of our societies, I would say that democratic institutions are holding and that whether we look at Congress, the electorate and the electoral process, certainly what we've seen in the midterms in 2018 in the U.S., and also what we see in, in the uh, judiciary, that 
our democratic institutions, I believe, are holding, and that we've all become fearful and in a way reminded of how fragile freedom and democracy really are. It was Thomas Paine who reminded us that um, these are things that every generation has to fight for. And I think we've been able to uh, take them for granted for a while, certainly since the 1940s. And maybe this is the wake-up call that many of us have needed, that it's incumbent upon us and our children's generation and the generation after that to fight and refight and refight that that these goods, these values, these principles are never one for all time. And I believe when you see the pushback and the backlash from our electorates and the surging now toward the democratic values that we see under violation right now, under threat, that the majority of people I would wager to say in our societies are ready to stake their claim, are ready to fight for these values. There is a relationship between taming capitalism and, as it were, ensuring the continuation of democracy. I mean, if you go back to industrial capitalism, for example, and that famous conversation that uh, one of the bosses of the car manufacturers in the United States had with the union boss, which was when the executive was saying, well, we're going to replace a lot of these people with uh, robots. And the union leader said to him, and who's going to buy your cars? There was a kind of a deal that was part of the rescuing of democracy and the taming of industrial capitalism, which was that it produced things that people could value, including, for example, stable employment in unionized plants and all that kind of stuff. So you could read, say, the the history of post-war United States in the 50s as being an example of how that system kind of worked. Now, you want to think about what might be the deal with surveillance capitalism that would, would do the same thing. What, apart from free services, can it offer to people, first of all? And more, more importantly, what about the fact that the inexorable drive, I think, of the technology is towards the elimination of work? What I can't see is what the deal might be next time, given this technology. A couple of things. First of all, I said a moment ago that I believe that surveillance capitalism is a rogue capitalism. So one direction is... Can we actually muster the resources in our democracy to tame this thing, to tether it back into into some kind of productive relation with a democratic society? And I've said, I think the answer there can be yes, and yes, it is work. But I think that it is well within our capabilities and already within our sights. Now we look on the capitalist side of the equation. What is there in surveillance capitalism that we grab onto, so to speak? What John is referring to is that historically, capitalism has existed with natural reciprocities with its societies. It has counted on society for sources of customers. It has counted on societies for sources of employees. That is no longer the case when we talk about surveillance capitalism, which is one reason why I say even though it mirrors the traditions of capitalism as far as, you know, the commodification of experience and so forth, that there are other ways in which it veers from the path of traditional capitalism because it breaks with these reciprocities. 
it no longer needs us as customers. We are not its customers. We are its free raw material. We are simply to be scraped for the behavioral data that becomes products for its true customers. Nor do they really need us as employees. The people that they really need as employees are the data scientists. And we know that students aren't getting educated in computer science at university because all the data scientists are going to work for the tech sector. Governments are being stripped of their data scientists because they can't compete with the salaries that the surveillance capitalists can offer. So in this sense, surveillance capitalism has cut loose from society. And this is why I call it a rogue capitalism and why I say that when we talk about mustering law and new regulatory institutions, we're talking about interrupting and outlawing. And the specifics of this mean, is it okay to essentially steal, because they're taking without asking private experience, to turn it into data to sell as predictions? Are predictions of human behavior legitimate products that should be sold in the marketplace? And should we have markets that trade exclusively in futures of human behavior in just the same way that we trade in spot markets and energy prices or, you know, pork belly futures? My answer is no, because in order to have a robust marketplace in behavioral futures, as we already have seen, autonomy must go. Privacy must fall. Democracy is fundamentally an enemy. Therefore, I think that these markets are inherently illegitimate. Part of my understanding of the solution here, John, is that were we to reclaim the digital for a robust information capitalism that brings back the promise of empowerment, that brings back the promise of democratization, that reconnects to society and what people actually need and want. I think the idea that there is an end of work is just the silliest idea I've ever heard. We have so much work to do. Look around at our streets, look around at our cities, look around at our people in need, look around at the people on planet Earth who need to be educated, look around at the needs for health care, look around at the scientific discoveries we need to make to cure our planet, to sequester carbon in the soil, all the things that we need to do in every domain. We have so much work to do. What we need are people who are empowered and educated, who have access to information, who are full, free participants in the division of learning and society, who will join together and do this work for the kind of future that the digital once promised us. So we talk about us, and we've been talking about the United States and Britain, and some of the challenges that we're facing with our democracies. You hinted at the fact that the EU, as a political institution, looks like the most robust one in this space, but of course it has other acute political weaknesses. Mm-hmm. It may be, I don't want to overstate it, but the tragedy of this story is that the one institution that seems to be grappling with it may be taken down for other reasons. Yes. But there's China as well. And a lot of people think there's another logic at work here. Mm-hmm. And it's a political logic mm-hmm. towards, and you said in your book, the irony of the neoliberal story that it's flipped to a kind of collectivization. Yes. 
and it's the coming together of the state and the corporations in a new kind of regulatory framework where the state is now the one that is surveilling us across the board in conjunction. Do you have any fears that there is that logic in here too? Because after all, this story isn't just about us, Cambridge or Maine or anywhere else. There are very weak democratic institutions in places. We had Martin Moore on this podcast talking about his book, Democracy Hacked, where it may be that what's happened in the United States, the institutions are fighting back, but there are many places in the world where the institutions are not powerful enough to fight back. And the same process is at work. And then there's the Chinese story. So just on the politics, which is where we're going to end, what would you say to the people who say, even though we accept this is not necessarily the logic of capitalism, there is a way that you can tame this form of capitalism, the logic of the politics in what may well be the Asian or Chinese century is towards the coming together of the state and the corporation to exploit this technology. Well, you asked if I have any fear, and you bet I do. Um, I'm dating myself by referencing an old record by the hundred-year-old man, you know. Fear is, your great, fear is your great motivator. Anyway, it was the uh, um, Mel Lewis. Fear, fear is your great motivator. Anyway, information technology is a robust technology that always produces more information. Wherever we have the digital, we have more information. And wherever we have more information, there is a political contest. Who gets to know? As you say, not just who decides, but who decides who decides Exactly. As well. Who gets to know, who decides who knows, and who decides who decides who knows. These are the dilemmas of knowledge, authority, and power. And they, they chase us. And in the, in the world that is rich, saturated with information, data, these dilemmas are ratcheted up to a fine degree of intensity. In the Chinese case, what we see is an authoritarian state wanting to affect its own societal goals, its own political outcomes, that has come to see in the resources of Chinese surveillance capitalism, the private Chinese internet companies and the incredible amount of data that they have amassed, that baroque detail on Chinese people, it came to see in these resources the means to affect its own political goals and to shape society the way it wants it to be shaped. So here we have a conflation again now of authoritarian power and instrumentarian power. And to me that is the ultimate nightmare scenario. And it's not science fiction. It's not Black Mirror because it's real. It exists and it is growing and it is being elaborated and institutionalized in the Chinese setting. Could that be our road is a question that you're asking. And the answer is yes, it could be our road because one can imagine a weakened democracy with a totemic leader, an authoritarian leader who wants to grab power and put him or herself in an absolutist kind of position. Happened in the 20th century, it could happen again. We are never immune to that kind of threat. 
And now with these instrumentarian capabilities that we've been talking about to meld those two, that could indeed be a very bleak future, not only for, for Europe, for America, for China, for the world. This is a realistic possibility for the future of humanity. And again, I, you know, I said to you, what are the things that kept me up all night and drove me to write this book for so many years? This is right at the front of the, of the queue because I have children, they're in their 20s. I want them to live in a world where they experience the hope and freedom as, as I have done, as you have done, as our generations have done. I am not willing to cede this fight, David, because for me, the Enlightenment is something that happened five minutes ago in the arc of human history. The ideas of democracy, of individual sovereignty, of human autonomy, of moral courage and judgment, these ideas are five minutes old in the long human story. I'm willing to give everything that I have to fight for them, whatever that takes. And I think many other people are as well. But I'm not a Pollyanna. I don't think that it's an inevitable, happy ending. These are real threats in our midst. And that is why surveillance capitalism, the instrumentarian power that it produces, the fact that it is intentionally designed to create ignorance in its populations, that it is no longer dependent on people, on society, that democracy is inherently its enemy as it aims to evade law and have its way with us. That is why I single out surveillance capitalism as a pivot that knits together the various threats we've been talking about. And that unless we confront, interrupt, and outlaw these practices, Everything else that we want for our future, beginning with democracy, becomes so much more fragile, so much more vulnerable, so much less certain. That's what the fight looks like for me. Next week, we're going to be having another conversation about capitalism, but a different one. This is with the author and venture capitalist Bill Janeway and Diane Coyle and Helen will be with us. And we're going to be talking about what it is to be a capitalist in the innovation economy. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Perfecto. Thank you. Yeah, woo. <laughs> Good way to end. <laughs> Good way Thank to you. ask a question. John missed the high five. John missed the high five. Can we get a high five? Sorry, I didn't mean to. Not at all. Oh, not at all. Not at all. We got. We we had a really rousing, genuinely like, to the barricades, my friends, to the barricades. It is to the barricades. To the virtual barricades before we have to go to the real ones. That's right. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.